This is the Mindvox podcast hosted by Claire Jacobs. Mindvox is a space to talk about our minds and mental health, so we cover topics that can be of a triggering or sensitive nature. We will always highlight the topics we cover in the show notes of each episode's description, so please read these before listening. Please note we're not medical experts, we're only experts of our own mental health experiences. To find out more about the pod or contact us, find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter using the name Mindvox Pod. Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of Mindvox. Today I've got with me Lydia Wilkins. She is a freelance journalist, author and speaker covering topics including disability, neurodivergence and social issues. She's been featured in publications such as The Independent and The Metro. Very, very nice. (laughs) Lydia is autistic and has recently published a book called The Autism Friendly Cookbook for Autistic Teenagers and Adults to Use on low energy, burnout days or, you know, just when they're needing inspiration. The book contains 100 recipes, which include modifications for those who are sensory seekers, sensory avoiders and those who are wanting new challenges. Lydia has come onto this pod to talk about her own experience of autism and the sensory issues that can be part of both this and ADHD. She'll give some useful tips for managing sensory issues, including those around the kitchen when trying to navigate cooking, especially on meltdown or shutdown days. Lydia also has knowledge around the role of gender and eating disorders for autistics and strategies for parents trying to support their neurodivergent children's needs. So obviously, I'm going to pick her brain on those where I can. Hello, Lydia. How are you? Hi, that I think that was possibly the nicest introduction I've ever been given. Thank you. Really? Oh, oh well, I'll take that. I'm happy about that. I'm sure <laughs> you've had lots of other nice ones. You're a speaker on, on some really interesting topics. I'm sure you've had some um, very professional intros in your time. I mean, well, but that was just so nice. Thank you. Mm. Um, everything's good. How are you? Oh, a bit frazzled. You know how it is. But, uh... <laughs> always late <laughs> I mean, the end, of Jan- end of January while we're talking it's one it's one of those months isn't it where mm. everything just sort of, keeps, sort of comes to a head in like the weirdest way possible I know I know but my first question to you is about your own journey really when were you diagnosed autistic and how did that even come about because for females it's, it seems to be so, so much more of a harder process yep um that's definitely the case I was very lucky. Um, So my mother was married to somebody previously who was a doctor. They understood the system in the sense of how to navigate it in terms of how to be diagnosed. It's sort of hard to describe because it was one of those sorts of an accumulation of events rather than going from A to B. It was sort of like everything sort of collided sort of quite dramatically almost. Throughout education, I'd always been told that, oh, she's a bit different. She's a bit quirky. Um, I think I was even described as being a bit of an eccentric at one point. And it was things like, so I didn't particularly make friends easily. I was fixated on quite sort of very niche interests. Um, But it was also sort of, it's things like I struggle with motor skills still. And sometimes in the sense of kind of like, if you put me in a sporting context or a cookery context, ironically, um, that's when my sort of my issue, if you like, shows up. So throughout education, I was always on and off, always being tested. So 
I actually went through some medical paperwork recently and it was saying things like, oh, yeah, she's been tested for dyslexia and things like that uh, at like a really young age. I don't remember a lot of this. So when I got to secondary school, um, we as a family, we actually moved down to Sussex back in 2012. I was 13 at the time. Guess how old I am, but you can do the maths. So life sort of went on while that was sort of rumbling away in the background from start to finish it took three and a half to four years maybe because it involved a move so like referrals and things were bounced around and professionals saying things like you know she's a woman she can't be autistic like there was a lot of gender barriers loving the fact that you were shaking your head while I'm answering this yeah it annoys um, me a lot so yeah carry on <laughs> so then the, in terms of the timeline the kind of cutoff point so just to explain they do the kind of like the diagnosis and then there was about a year's wait for the report to come in yeah it was because there was effectively no one to like you know properly write this up and like you know do all that sort of thing so I got the letter saying she's autistic. The report took like a year longer, I think it was. And then they did the final follow-up meeting, which was like to kind of officially consolidate. So that was in January 2015. And that is when people ask me when you were diagnosed, I give that as the sort of like the official sort of timeline, just because it was a bit of a mess, to be honest. Um, So that was nearly a decade ago. I realised that I'm very, very lucky in that sense, that I was diagnosed when I was a teenager. That being said, the sort of catch to that is once you go past the age of 16, or in some context 18, there's basically no support. So I got the diagnosis and then it was sort of like, oh, okay, here's your diagnosis, bye! Like there was for so long afterwards, there was nothing. And so many educational establishments that I went to were just like, really quite ableist in that sense um, and very often didn't like do adjustments or like the bare minimum <laughs> it's been a process I like you use the word journey in this yeah I think it's a it's 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 a journey for me because it's such I'll probably call it a roller coaster most of the time to be honest because yeah. I'm a fair bit older from the sounds of it I can't do maths very well <laughs> But that's the thing that's really weird about like context mm. of this talking to you. I feel it's one of those sorts of I'm always trying to work out if I'm coming across as condescending. I'm very often aware mm. that I'm sometimes the youngest person in the room. No, no, not at all. It's absolutely fine. Uh, and I think that that's a typical, I would say, autistic thing. It's that worry, isn't it, of, of people understanding me properly? Am I offending them when I'm not actually meaning to do that? Um, it can be something that a lot of people, you know, masking, don't even get me started on masking. And I think. It's interesting to hear even when you were as young as you were, it took quite a long time and all the things like that's why I was shaking my head, you know, some doctors just not recognising it in women and I just it annoys me a lot because I'm now on my way to 40 and now waiting to try and start the process of autism testing for myself. Obviously I have the ADHD late diagnosed, so it's kind of, it's just a pattern, isn't it? It's just, we're always sort of seen, I don't know, as we can't possibly have it, but you know, I'm sure you're aware a lot of the studies were male, weren't they? And a lot of females present differently. Um, I actually... There's a lack of nuance in terms of, mm. I think it's also partly to do with, we assume that our own experience is the kind of standardised normal. Mm. And very often in the kind of I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a way to not be controversial in my wording. <laughs> I think sometimes there is kind of like a almost like an entitlement when it comes to some medical professionals in the sense of 
that I'm the doctor, therefore I know best. The patient knows themselves the best, arguably. It's their yes. body. It's the thing about you don't have to give over the autonomy mm. to somebody just because they're wearing a white coat. Mm. We are the ones that know it best. And also, if on the day we haven't articulated it very well or they haven't asked enough questions to get a fair enough assessment of what we're like, because that's the other thing, they'll assume that we'll tell them everything or remember to or say it in the ways that they will be able to then assess on their tick list, oh, that must mean that person must have that. But if we haven't, if it's a bad day, if it's a day where we're overloaded or overstimulated and we're not talking very much, we're so overwhelmed that we are not thinking about all the evidence they need to tick off then they're not going to have a very accurate picture of us as well which is another side of it isn't it but no i find it i find it fascinating i just i'm just worried that it's never going to get any better but i'm hoping in the last 10 years since you were diagnosed that, it, that you've seen have you seen any improvements with professionals and things like that yes and no um okay so this is not strictly a medical professional improvement but i think that there's more of awareness and it's the fact that we are talking about this sort of thing a lot more so this is where i'm going to pick up there's a wonderful book called rebel bodies by a woman called sarah graham sarah graham is a journalist she covers health issues and it's to do with gen it's kind of like the intersection of gender and the medical profession but it's actually inclusive so when we when we talk about inclusion so very often disability is not included in this so that's what I would count myself as. I don't see myself reflected in kind of discussions about where gender meets issue, X issues are very often. But she actually talks about, so things like endometriosis treatment and then how, for example, patients who tick X, Y, Z are not treated because of so many factors in the medical profession. And she actually goes into, okay, this is how this is how you advocate for yourself. Here's a kind of toolkit. And here are some ways in which the medical profession can do better. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm definitely going to add that one in the show notes for anyone that, that thinks that that would be useful for them, because I think I may have to go and get, get that one, because I'm constantly yes, seeing various specialists. And yeah, like you said, to have something to help you know how to advocate for yourself, because some of them don't give you the time of day, that they don't give you that space. And it could be really, scary is not the right word, but I don't know. It, it's it, invalidating. That's it. That's the word. I feel very invalidated by some that you, you're just a number and they're trying to very quickly get through and some of them just don't want to take the time to listen but others are amazing so I'm not you know they're under it they've got a lot to do I do appreciate that but still we we all matter each of us two things can be true at once I fully appreciate that the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure and has not been funded properly that being said when I go to a GP or doctor's office I should not have to be putting up with... So it seems like a nurse last year, as soon as I said I'm autistic, she started addressing me using language like she called me love, for example. She actually hurt me, but um, and I actually made a complaint about her. I should not have to be taking someone with me to medical appointments to ensure that I receive a standard of care. It's recently, so to, for anyone who's maybe listening to this, I'm also a long COVID patient. It's not fun. And I've collected so many misdiagnosis labels in the nearly a year since I was in quarantine. So it seems like as soon as I was, if I ever said I'm autistic or someone's seen it on my medical notes, they immediately start talking to whoever I'm with as if they're the patient. They use infantilizing language 
And it seems like so at the start of January on my last appointment, I was told that I was a medical mystery, as if I was some sort of curiosity and not a person. This happens so very often. This is not abnormal. The amount of people that I have spoken to recently who've described very similar experiences. Mm. That so two things can be true at once. So I support the NHS, mm. I adore this institution, I have read books about it I've looked at the history I've given money to causes and all that sort of thing but in terms of disability and all that sort of thing the two things can be true at once we should not be having to deal with this sort of thing this went on a really weird tangent I'm so sorry (laughs) no because I find this stuff fascinating and I think you're right about that I think what what the problem is is the lack of up-to-date information and training that these a lot of these professionals have so like you know, the infant you know speaking to you like you're an infant and why would you do that because do they not understand that autism is a huge spectrum and everyone has different traits that are harder for them to deal with or easier for them to deal with and therefore not everyone would require you to use a change of language you know it's, it's just a bit odd not everyone would require you to speak to someone that's accompanying them you know you're an accomplished writer you're an accomplished speaker you know what like, why on earth would they change the way do you see what I'm it's just it's bizarre. The thing about the infantilizing language, that isn't exclusive to medical professions. That happens to me pretty much daily, to be honest. Um, And it becomes really draining in the sense of there's an expectation of I'm just ignorant, therefore you should be educating me. I'm not an educational resource. I'm a person. I do not. I should not have to be spending a silly amount of time addressing every single issue. And the same should be for you know, other protected characteristics. Like, we should not be expecting a person to just be our free education. We should be doing and taking that upon ourselves. We should be learning all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, In terms of the, the, it's, I think it's partly to do with the clash between the social model and the medical model of disability in how this sort of happens. But it's also in the sense of kind of like bucking convention so people the thing that's always said to me is you don't look like you're autistic you're a woman and you're speaking to me so it's just sort of every time that sort of thing is said a part of me just sort of dies inside to be honest Mm, it's that lack of Um, education isn't it they're just this assumption and stereotype needs to that narrative needs to change doesn't it and i can see what you mean like I've said it before. I mean, obviously, I'm not officially diagnosed autistic, but the more and more I've researched it heavily, I clearly am. With all due respect, but you are self-diagnosed. You are one of us. Like, Mm. Mm. no qualms about that here. Like, if if you're Mm. one of us, you're one of us. Like, Mm. um, we should be... yeah, it's shocking how people do it because I've even when I phoned up Virgin, yeah, there are other companies by the way, uh, to talk about and complain about my TV not working. As soon as I said, look, I can't deal with the way you you, you want leaving me in limbo, I'm autistic. She immediately changed as if I was deaf. She started speaking slowly and loudly at me, yeah. and I was like, "What are you doing?" I'm trying to explain to you that I need dates. I need to know what's going on. When you're going to get someone to help me? I can't live in limbo. It's driving, me. and you have adjusted your tone because I was like, "What? I don't, what have I told you? Or have I said I have some huge delay that I don't understand what you're saying? That I can't understand? Can you speak slower?" No. So that infuriates me, and I think this is why so many people don't want the label of it, and enough they fear 
being given a diagnosis in case people treat them like this and I don't know is that do you see why people might feel like that I mean do you know other people that that have that fear of I think I am but I don't want to go and get the actual diagnosis Um, that is a big question um there are people that I'm aware of who took a lot of time in considering it's a it's a kind of you sort of weigh off the risks versus the benefits almost (laughs) it's also that thing about so very often there's a conflation of do I tell this person, do I get the diagnosis or do I tell my child that they are on the autistic spectrum? Because there's this inherent worry that it's just going to be used as a justification for being a bit of a dick. Like in the sense that people go, oh, I'm diagnosed autistic, therefore I can be a dick to you. Like there is such a false idea that. And so many parents that I've either taught or they've come up to me and they're sort of worried about, like, I don't want my child to be different. One, they already know. That's literally, like, in the sense of that they know they will. So many, anecdotally, so many autistic individuals go, oh, I know from the before I was diagnosed, I knew I was different. Some diagnostic literature has also pointed this out. They already know it. So... Second of all, it's their information, so surely you have no right to be gatekeeping that. And thirdly, to to use a sort of crude metaphor, you wouldn't exactly be going, oh, my kid has broken their leg, but I'm not going to tell them that just because something is neurological versus physical, like, really? Like, I'm I'm not sure if this answers the question or if it answers the question particularly well, but this is something that comes up. And just in the sense of to be diagnosed, I'm fully aware is quite a privileged thing because it's quite hard to access there are some drawbacks in the sense that it so organizations not being exactly good when it comes to reasonable adjustments there have been times where i would argue that i've been fired from jobs for my autisticness because the failures of support and therefore like things Mm. escalating on that sort of thing but it's rather than sort of when this is sort of a hidden sort of fact you could you could arguably start to say in terms of things like mental health for example it has an impact a negative one at that you know you're different already so why are we why cover up that fact and not embrace it and sort of think of it as something shameful like this Mm. it just makes no sense to me it's to be a part of something that is a rich tapestry, a very rich experience, and ultimately you're probably better off for being diagnosed. Mm, it's And that's the thing. It's like, like you said, they already know they're different. And I've grown up thinking that things wrong with me. Like I'm lazy, I'm stupid, I've got no common sense. I just, I can't do what other people do because I've got an issue. But if I'd have known, actually you're autistic and you've got ADHD, you have neurological pathways that are completely wired differently. To well, other people and confidence as well doesn't yeah, it this exactly like i wouldn't blame yeah i wouldn't blame myself it's just it's all a bit much and we have this sort of a standardized idea of productivity and sort of tying it together with worth we need to be undoing this quite radically i've got a feeling i'm going to be asking you to come back with multiple episodes and multiple <laughs> topics because this is all the stuff that i'm itching <laughs> to start covering <laughs> Um, this is me getting on my soapbox now but I guess for, for you in particular with your your autism what are the things these days as an adult female what what do you struggle with the most sort of day to day 
that's hard to answer because in the sense of things fluctuate. So um, currently my executive functioning is pretty poor. That's but that's partly to do with um so being a long COVID individual. So it I don't have as much energy. I wobble, I have physical issues and so much more. So tasks take me so much longer. In terms of executive functioning and sequencing tasks, I have to write down a hell of a lot more just to be able to do the same sort of things. It's also things such as transition. So I live in Sussex, but so much journalistically takes place in London. Therefore, I have to go and get a train. And it takes out a huge chunk of your day as well to sort of go, okay, so you need to walk to the train station. You need to get there for this particular time and you need to get on that train and sort of navigating those sorts of barriers. I have sensory issues. I sort of, it's at this point that I always sort of expressed that I wish I had like a personal assistant in order to be able to do this sort of function. I don't qualify for one. And sometimes it's things such as socialising. I actually find quite difficult and um, very often because the world is inaccessible. Um, accessibility needs to be built in everywhere, yet very often it's not and it's not taken into consideration. My needs uh because of the fact that i can talk to you relatively fluently i'm told so very often as if this is a compliment it's really not oh we forget that you're autistic we forget that you're disabled and all that sort of thing therefore my needs are very often taken as a sort of opt-in or opt-out or preference Mm, they're not i'm always gonna be like this i would not mask myself anymore and i will not make an over amount of effort just to be passing anymore because I it, to be honest it's tiring I'm too old for that like mm. <laughs> no it's brilliant that you can unmask I think I'm in that stage of not knowing quite how to do it little bits I'm, I'm understanding of learning more about what I struggle with and not putting pressure on myself to do those things and that's the thing I can present I can talk I can do this sort of stuff and people will assume I have confidence that I actually don't have they won't see me in a setting where I'm in a group of people with no agenda no work I'm just supposed to be there and talking and socializing and suddenly I I feel like I'm in hell and I can't cope with it and the noises and the sounds and the people and I just the lighting I just don't want to be there and I will be someone hidden in the corner so, you know, recently having to try to do a renewal for PIP, which I absolutely oh, cannot no. stand. <laughs> and I have a question for you actually about this, because you I saw you've written an article about this. And, you know, constantly every couple of years having to prove that I have issues that stop me from doing things because, oh, but you appear competent. You're talking to me on the phone. Right. But you don't yeah, see the two weeks I haven't you. slept trying to do this form because I'm so scared I'm going to miss something out. And I have insomnia. I've had panic attacks. I've been raging at everyone. You haven't seen me afterwards doing an hour's call with you. How I'm going to now not be able to do anything for two days because my head's going to be so exhausted. You know, it's that sort of. And I, I've seen that you've written something about your experience. And I didn't know if you wanted to sort of briefly say what it's been like for um, you. So this is sort of how the book started really to be honest in around July 2020 I was made aware that I was eligible for personal independence payment autism is recognized as a disability under the Equalities Act therefore I am eligible for PIP so I applied and I always say that if I had put a bet on this I would have been a really rich woman by now because of how diabolically awful the system is 
So it was one of those things where I would sort of equate this to always sort of walking a tightrope. In newsrooms and as a freelancer, I very often feel like I am treated as if I'm too autistic to be accepted by other journalists, which is fine. It's their problem, not mine. They're missing out, frankly. That's what I always tell myself. But when it comes to sort of, if I say sort of autistic communities, I often feel like I'm perceived as being too much of a journalist. I will make my own space for this reason. That's just to explain the sort of like the tightrope, the sort of walking constantly. So I knew it was going to be bad. Didn't know how bad it would be. My PIP claim actually went to tribunal in the end. So loving the fact that you've raised your eyebrows at that. Um, actually, <laughs> it's so common, it's... isn't it? So many oh, people sadly don't get... I think they say most people who the first application will immediately be denied. And so many people that tend to appeal, there's a high percentage that will get it. But even then... It's something like 90% these days. Yeah. And a lot Um, of people don't realise that and they just don't appeal. They assume, oh, it's a no. And it's a shame because that's kind of weirdly the strange game they play with this this format. I... The thing about this is, so I am qualified as a journalist by the International Council for Training for Journalists, so I technically have a law qualification. So in that respect, it was sort of helpful because I knew sort of at strategic points, I knew what to expect and how to follow like the evidence and that sort of thing. Uh, and there was just, it's that sort of like, at some points, I always sort of think, if you don't laugh, you're going to cry at this. But there was a strategic point where at the sheer ridiculousness of it all, I just remember thinking, okay, I'm going to have some fun with you now. Like, do not mess me around on this. I got the first assessment back and it had this tiny comment in it where it says she can just learn how to do particular things. So by that logic, I can just learn not to be autistic. Like, this is so beyond stupid, this. But it said in particular, she can just learn how to cook. I can't just learn I'm autistic. Like, there are so many issues. I'm not just going to suddenly overcome them. I have strategies and things in place. It's also the fact that it's things like the executive functioning and being able to sequence tasks and all that sort of thing. Like, I cannot just learn. It's so beyond stupid. So over the course of about four days, I was talking to people personally and professionally There was a universal sort of experience to this where my issues in the kitchen seemed to be quite common rather than just sort of being isolated in that respect. So I was doing the kind of like insomniac sort of brain sort of firing off on every possible pathway. And then probably four days, I was up until silly o'clock in the morning, like 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., writing manically, sort of like brainstorming. In September of that year, I pitched the book to Jessica Kingsley Publishers, and here we are two years later where they said, okay, go and write this book. That's Just brilliant. the back of it. Um, it was one of those, Lydia got cross about something and decided to do something about this. I feel like, in the sense of sort of going like to the DWP, I feel like this is the biggest like FU sort of thing to mm. them. Like That's 80,000 words. It's nearly 400 pages about why they were wrong. Mm, mm, that's brilliant did you actually when you took them to tribunal were you successful did you manage to yeah you did so that's positive that yeah it just sounds like it was probably a horrible journey to get there but you managed to actually get it did you learn any sort of useful tips for anyone that might be listening who's about to go through that lovely journey that might be useful for them to know plan everything 
So don't leave anything to chance. So um, by that, I mean, so when it comes to phone calls and things, such as when you have to go to mandatory reconsideration, plan everything. Be aware that the DWP is not your friend, so don't spend too much time and energy on it because it's inevitably not going to work. Three, when I say this, um, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. Um, so no, when I say know your rights, there is very often the DWP likes to play games and sort of get you to jump through hoops and things. If you read up about the law and all that sort of thing in terms of PIP claims, some of these some things might surprise you. So I actually got a, a recording admitted in evidence with a transcript and everything. So my the mandatory reconsideration and the first assessment were over the phone during lockdown. So I actually recorded the mandatory reconsideration, got it admitted. You can also, there was a lady who actually contacted me about this. Um, I, She was, when it comes to, you can ask for reasonable adjustment sometimes. So if you go to tribunal, if they want to do it over the phone, you can write back and say that you'd rather do it in person and all that sort of thing. Not many people know that. You can always ask okay. for adjustments. Final thing, if you go in person, don't dress up. Whatever you do, do not dress up. Appear as yourself, as your wonderful, authentic self. The way this was expressed to me was have a no-fucks-given attitude. <laughs> so rather than um, dressing up, like, you know, when you go for a job interview mm. and you have like a blazer and you look vaguely professional, don't do any of that because the second that you're on site of the tribunal and the people in charge, they're assessing you. It starts the minute you are sat down and that the minute you are on site. Don't dress up for them. Go as yourself. Have all the disability aids. So if you're if you use like a power chair, use the power chair. Do all of that. Don't that mask. Was, mm. Yeah. Don't mask. Take all the time. And don't like um so don't like in the sense of people in the sense of sort of like be yourself sounds so stupid to say. But that's the best thing that you can do rather than just sort of like presenting like a version of this is my best professional self, yeah. that sort of thing. I loved it when a friend of mine said, have a no fucks given attitude. So I had I had, I had my weighted blanket, I had stimmates, I had the bright colours and all that sort of thing. I was freely stimming away throughout the tribunal. I really feel that that really sort of emphasised the point that even though I might be fluent and that I pass sometimes, I'm still autistic. So all of that experience you've just had then with Pip, it sounds absolutely horrific, but you said that's where you were getting the ideas for creating your new book. So what was it about that experience that made you think, Do you know what, I need to create a cookbook? Um, it was the particular comment where it said I could just learn how to cook. You can't just learn. And also, like, one of the issues that kept coming up was there was so much inaccessibility in sort of kitchen food-related areas. The amount of people I spoke to where they said that they had been bullied, discriminated against, or that they had quite a poor relationship with food. So it ranged from being told that they were a fussy eater and therefore bratty to bullying, discrimination, and the more extreme kind of like eating disorder end of things. That's sort of where the genesis of this sort of began, really. It's simply in the sense of this obviously needed speaking about. Um, that sounds like really pretentious. I'm really aware of that. I'm so sorry. 
but just in the sense of there was n- there's no resource but when you're diagnosed you're told the what makes you autistic but you're never told the how to cope so there's never like you're not given the toolkit in the sense of how to cope how to adapt all that sort of thing mm. if you have the language to say what you find difficult if you're struggling that sort of thing it enables autonomy for example it enables personhood it encourages independence it gives you self-confidence and frankly just like in the sense of coping a bit better and knowing yourself it's always a good thing Mm. in this book what have you done to be useful for autistic people what what would they expect if they if they were looking at it so there's two parts to the book the first part is kind of like Part one is sort of like, this is what you need to know about yourself. So things like sensory issues, sensory profiles, if you're living by yourself for the first time. So like what sort of tools in the kitchen, what those are for, what you need, hints for parents, teachers, guardians, that sort of thing. Um, Notes on accessibility. So equity is needed to create a stage of equality. We can talk about that later. Um, Part two is 100 recipes divided into four chapters. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, miscellaneous. I'm going to need to refer back to the book just to make sure I get this right. (laughs) I finished writing this over a year ago and it's really quite weird that a lot of this I actually can't remember unless I have a visual prompt. That's not weird, that's divergence. (laughs) That's exactly how it is. did not know that um i thought it was just my brain being like me being me so the book is illustrated it has a illustrated key for dietary sensory needs so like if you are vegetarian vegan there is a visual cue each recipe has a duration so the duration is it's slightly extended rather than being quite specific to encompass so if you have a comorbidity for example if you had something like cerebral palsy, for example, and a five-minute dish was just given to you, it's not going to take you five minutes, so there's extra time on the end, just in case. It has an energy rating, so in terms of energy lost. If you had a meltdown, uh, something like a roast dinner is not something that you're going to be capable of making, necessarily. And you can't necessarily tell that was sort of like standardised cookbooks. It was I always found it really frustrating to sort of like make from a book in the sense of, trying to tell how much energy it cost. There's a skill level. So again, the brackets on this are quite wide to sort of encompass like if this is suitable for beginners who've just started or if you're like, you know, really interested in like doing something quite elaborate. I've also got uh, each recipe has to make when. So when it might be suitable. So if you've had a day after an exam, maybe. Each recipe has a story or like you know hints at the top of it you have the equipment you will need the ingredients as you do on every recipe in the how to make you have pre-preparation so um so just explain in terms of executive functioning it's just as a observation it's probably a good idea to have all the ingredients measured out ready to go rather Mm. than doing it on the fly yeah it minimizes risk level it makes the whole process just that little bit calmer cookbooks and how non-autistic people seemingly cook so very often it's quite a sort of angry almost kind of like a sport because they're measuring it on the fly I never understood that it's just sort of it seemed like really stupid to me in the sense of like you're just making hard work for yourself 
we pathologize and make autism too abnormal so very often it's not that should just be like standard to be honest then you have the method and then you have an expansion repertoire so if you want to adapt the recipe so if you want to add like you know for more flavor spice that sort of thing that is the adaptations for all the different recipes and then there's things at the end so you know when you're reading a book and you're like what the hell does this term mean in terms of food making I've tried to compile as many different terms but I had no idea what they meant when I was researching just to give you a standardized definition of some to sort of decode because so many cookbooks have an assumed knowledge and yet so many people non-autistic or otherwise have no idea what the hell it means yeah i remember when they first you know i used to try and cook when i was younger and there'd be things like fold in the flour and i'm like what does fold in mean i said sort of these days we've got google to kind of go well what does folding mean and it'll tell you those sort of things but if it's already nicely laid out in your recipe book that's so much easier she didn't have to Google it. It should be the work of the recipe book. Like the assumption that we should already know or that you have the time to stand there and just Google. Not all of us have all the time in the exactly. world. Exactly. I did read that it says something about you've got dishes for things like people that are sensory seekers and avoiders. And I wondered if you could explain what a sensory seeker and a sensory avoider is or when those things might happen for someone. Okay, so every single person has eight different senses, more than the usual five. Obviously, you have, you know, smell, touch, and all that sort of thing. You have proprioception, interception, and vestibular, which are three other separate functions. When it comes to being on the autistic spectrum, you have different levels of sensitivity so that they might be different. So if you are hypersensitive in that there is too much sort of coming in, that means you're a sensory avoider. So as an example, I'm, I have hypersensitivity issues with sound. If there's too much, I can't concentrate. It affects my speech. It impacts everything. I cannot function. But when it comes to food, I'm a sensory seeker. But I want the more input. I, am, I love spice. I love flavor. I like really quite strong and striking flavors. So that's what a sensory profile is in a kind of a nutshell. That's a very brief sort of whistle-stop type thing. The thing about this is, in order to go around and sort of live life, it's a sort of a balancing act of the incoming and outgoing all the time and sort of having to manage all the different levels. When it comes to eating and that sort of thing, knowing about that makes a huge difference we have this sort of arbitrary idea that we should just learn and just cope with it if there's ever an issue there was an organization that i used to run webinars when i was a part of it and one one of the webinars was about food and eating one of the things that kept coming up was parents would describe their kid as fussy very often it was the girl who was the fussy one it was virtually never the boy it was quite a highly gendered term and when you sort of started digging into this it's not the it's not the fact that the kid was throwing a tantrum it was the fact that they had a sensory issue with the food that was incoming so it could have been the texture it could have been the taste it could have been the format and very often the parents were sort of like at the end of the table with this like they try punishing them they try to do that sort of thing so one of the things that we had to teach the parents was if you change the format of the meal so the example we always used to have was carrots. If they, they might not like the sound of the carrot crunching, if you, you know, boil carrots, they might be more inclined to eat this. 
if it's a sensory issue, it was always that one piece of information that as soon as they said it, all virtually always the feedback was like, oh my God, you've just completely changed everything. But if you know about the sensory issue and what a sensory profile is, that is the key to unlocking so much. And it's, it's an issue, but you can, sometimes there are strategies in place you can use to sort of navigate barriers. Yeah, but you are never taught this at diagnosis. Mm. You are never sort of, you have to go looking for that information. That mm. is why I put it in the book and with all the different recipes to enable autonomy, I hope. Mm. And I guess like you said, so you're someone that wants lots of flavour because you're seeking that sensory, but there might be mm. others, which I think is kind of seen as the more stereotypical type yeah. of autistic eating, as they would say, where it's all bland and soft. And, you know, I've got a child that won't stop eating just chicken nuggets and nothing else. And I can't, yeah. they won't eat vegetables. I guess would that be, that would be the sensory avoider possibly in the sense of. That is pass- sensory yeah. So you have meals and, and sort of information in your book about that sort of style as well yeah there's a mix of different meals um it's not just me writing what i like it's there are 30 Mm. other recipes from 30 other autistic people for example so Mm. it was just one of those things i mean it's i love the fact that you pick up on the stereotypes as well so this is just to kind of illustrate so at christmas i went out with two other journalists who are both significantly older than me they're both in their 50s I'm 23, nearly 24, um, so you can do the maths there. And one of the jokes that particular evening was we had gone out to an Indian restaurant. And I remember I and the other person I was with, we were sort of being mocked for bland food. And it was just sort of, I was laughing to myself just because Indian food is actually my favourite. Like, I collect spices in my hat, in my flat. But it was just sort of like in the sense of that really gave that sort of in the sense of sort of, OK, I understand why you're sort of saying this, because it's such a stereotype. But again, every autistic person, the same as every human being, is different. It would be so boring if we were all the same, wouldn't it? Like, exactly. Yes, I completely just, agree with you there. But there's yeah. just such a standardised view of we must because we're autistic we must all be the same mm. just... whilst we talk about stereotypes but what would the typical issues be that you've come across for neurodivergent people in the kitchen i mean you've touched on some of it it could be to do with what they want to eat in terms of sensory you've got in your book things like if someone's just had a bit of a meltdown or if, or if they're overstimulated it's been really overwhelming and they're exhausted you know there's there's meals that do not take too much of your, your concentration your focus you can just get it done quickly and still and still eat but are there other issues within the kitchen even if it's down to the physical area of the kitchen yeah. where where there's advice you can give on sort of how to manage those typical issues it really depends on the person um so there are a, a, there's a potential range of issues within this so it's things like interception if you can't interpret sensations particularly well you might not know you're hungry or you might not be able to tell if you are full. Both are very different issues. Um, so it's things like if you have specified times for eating or if you have um, standardised ways of measuring out food to make sure like you're not overeating. So I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this. Um, the NHS has guidelines on like, you know, standardised meal sizes and all that. It's when in doubt, always go with the NHS advice. There's also things like motor skill issues. Very often there's comorbidities. If you're autistic, you're likely to have X, Y, Z. 
I don't have a comorbidity, I, as far as I know, but I struggle really quite extensively with my motor skills. Like my, it's, I always come up with the phrase, my hands don't work particularly well. Like I can just, some things just don't work. In the kitchen, you can make adaptations very often on a quite cheap basis. Adaptations are not something to be ashamed of. It's not a, so very often there's this idea of you must power through, you must learn how to. Why is that? We can just adapt and make life significantly easier. One of the best Christmas presents I was ever given, and I recommend this to anyone, um, was a jar opener, a manual one. At the time, it was about two quid on Amazon where you can hook it round a jar. You wiggle it round and it opens it up for you. Oh, lovely. That's brilliant for like wrist problems. Like I've got problems with my right arm now and my wrist. And yeah, in terms of that probably sounds like a lifesaver, actually. The amount of chronically ill individuals that I know who have and some who have chronic pain issues also have this. It's genius. And it should be standard in every kitchen. Like so rather than it's not like, you know, when you open a tin and you have the opener, this is more like a jam jar type scenario. Mm. So it's things like that, sort of thinking how to adapt your kitchen so that like there's actual like aids in place. Having strategies around issues that you might have, they are all very good starting blocks. And if you're a parent of a child that struggles with, with food, maybe your child is autistic and you've not had sadly the support yet about learning around food, ways to help them. Have you got any advice? Like I've heard a regular one, one that's quite often is that they will not eat anything other than certain things. Now, there is obviously the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, yeah. which is something that some children have. And that's a very, very sort of specialised form of that, isn't there? I mean, do you have you any experience of it's, that? I didn't have experience of that, but I did speak to people who were, if I say, had experience of or an indirect knowledge of in trying to create the book. One of the individuals who gave me recipe actually had that condition. I don't feel like it's appropriate for me to speak to that simply because I'm not a part of that. When it comes for parents, however, if you're concerned that your child has an eating disorder or an eating issue, go to your GP. That is the first port of call. Don't mm. go to people like me who are talking on this mm. podcast. Go and seek professional help about this. Mm. And there's obviously lots of stuff online about things to try because that's the thing as well. I think a lot go to GPs and they just get well, if pushed away. Go, online, they? Go, go for, if I say, reliable sources of information. Play, it, it seems like whenever people say go online, it's I always want to caveat with things like please don't listen to personalities like Andrew Tate, like mm. don't go for that sort of yes. thing. Yes. Go for reputable sources if if possible, go to the people who have experience of such an issue. Alfred Awareness UK. Okay, so there's an actual website that they can look and they'll get ideas on yeah. whether their child might have that and how to support them. So that's that's really, really useful. Um, when it comes to other things as well, so there's BEAT. It's the BEAT was founded in 1989. It's the UK's eating disorder charity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also places like Minds. The National Autistic Society has, if I say, kind of like autism-specific information on things like this. Mm. So rather than, I think it's it's always important to consider the kind of like intersection between conditions. Yeah, definitely. So like autism and the food, they should be looked at 
side by side for a multitude of reasons, which is why I think the NAS is very good on how they've sort of considered that. The NHS, obviously, look on their website. They have wonderful information and reliable information. And I mean, there's obviously local people, there'll be Facebook groups of, of things like autistic parents groups locally where you can actually say, you know, my child's struggling to get them to eat anything other than these dishes. Anyone got any advice? And it might be that I imagine a lot of parents will say, oh, I've been there. This is what I did. Or I'm still in that struggle. If you ever want to just talk, you know, there's 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 also that sort of emotional support as well, which I think is really important because I can imagine it, it's quite stressful when you feel like you're not feeding your child what they need. Uh, and you're worried about their health if it is something particularly unhealthy that they won't well, stop eating. Medical professional in that mm, sense. It definitely. can even just be it can even just be things like um having a plate separator. So this also again wasn't known about particularly, um, and I was so really surprised by this. Sometimes sensory seekers don't like their food touching because mm. they can taste the food, the sort of cross contamination. Uh, again amazon is great for this there are sometimes it's called a plate separator where you can have a thing that you actually put on a plate to separate all the different elements Mm, mm. it looks a little bit like a school dinner tray but rather than having sort of the arbitrary expectation of you will eat this and like you know throw food all together it's also things like on i've just done a book talk and this was something that the one of the audience members raised um, where she said she said this really interesting thing where often on social occasions it's expected that you eat particular types of food so like Christmas dinner you mm. eat the Christmas dinner standardized she was telling me about her son who had something completely different I think it was some like either chicken nuggets or like macaroni cheese and he was sort of like told that he was being really bad for this and not joining in he's happy he's socializing What's the deal? what's the deal? Just because you don't, other people mm. don't have the control over what somebody else is eating, mm. they're still there. It's still Christmas. You're all together. Like let's just exactly, and don't oh. force them to mask and be something that they're not. If it makes them incredibly unhappy, because then they won't interact with everyone else. They'll be too busy, possibly dysregulating or feeling in a lot of discomfort which is not going to mean they're going to enjoy the experience or start associating things like christmas negatively wouldn't they so that is a really important thing like it just has Mm. no reason or rhyme to it there is in terms of sort of kind of like culinary culture there's so many arbitrary expectations that have no logic to it Mm. we need to unlearn that and to actually have conversations about how harmful that can be and i think like you said as well for people, especially for autistics, that eating disorders can be quite a common occurrence, mm. um, whether that's overeating, undereating, binge eating, you know, there's all the different types. I think some argue it's because it's a form of control to try and control. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but what's your take on it? When it comes to research, there is, it's starting to suggest in terms of cisgender women, cisgender women being those who were diagnosed often quite significantly later on in life when it comes to research it's saying things like the eating disorder is sort of alongside the autism sometimes in terms of sensory issues manifesting in such a way if i have phrased this incorrectly and anyone listening feel free to correct me if i've offended someone anywhere i'm not speaking on behalf of that group of people but in this sense of when researching the book, there was a lot on this and it was being written about very often in the sense of, I remember reading 
I think it may have been in The Guardian, actually, where one person said that they had had an eating disorder on and off for a long time. Then they found out that they were autistic so many years later. The problem with that is when she... It wasn't until she was autistic and that it was actually taking into consideration in connection with the eating disorder that it was starting to finally work in the sense of her being treated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, that's why I was sort of making the point earlier. Sometimes conditions need to be considered in tandem with each other, I think. We do ourselves a disservice by suggesting otherwise, I think. And I'm guessing as well, sort of within the book you're doing as well, if you've got a lot of advice about, particularly for people that struggle quite often with shutdowns and meltdowns, I know you've said you've got sort of recipes for days where it's quite tricky, but for some people this can go on for weeks. I mean, have you got any advice within book or, you know, of ways to manage doing things like cooking during that time? I'm glad that you've asked me this because this was, I've actually just written and scheduled a piece on my newsletter about this. Pre-prepared food gets a bad reputation, I think. And it's quite classist, particularly when people start saying things like, oh, it's really lazy. Yeah, loving the fact that the person I am in fact talking to, I can read your face enough so that you've <laughs> sighed and your shoulders have shrugged at this and the mm. sort of like, hmm. It's one of those things where, Pre-preparation, pre-prepared food and the kind of like pre-preparation. If you are disabled, slash neurodiverse, whatever you want to say, identify with, it's very often a necessity. So in my profession as a journalist, for example, I remember back in 2018, I was interviewing a thalidomide woman. So thalidomide being the birth drug the birth defect scandal where babies were born in the 60s Mm. and it caused damage to the hands some of those individuals who are still alive today still talk about and they live they have lived into middle age some of them and i remember she was telling me about a particular report that was published by the uk government where the cost of living with thalidomide injuries had actually been quantified so the difference between an able-bodied person i.e me i have two arms, two legs that are fully formed, versus someone who has shortened arms and fused fingers, for example, on both sides. The example she gave was they might need to buy pre-prepared carrots. Pre-prepared carrots being cut up into pieces. Sometimes the act of having them cut up and packaged sometimes costs more than just a standard carrot. Like that's, you know, homegrown and all that sort of thing. The difference between those two things are the cost of living with their disability. And that was actually put into a report. So there's a classist assumption where it goes, oh, this is like, you know, really millennial and it's so bratty and it's so entitled. Like, why on earth would you want that sort of thing? There was actually a podcaster I remember listening to around about 2018, 2019. She actually used the phrase, why the fuck would you want that such such a thing? Like, mm-hmm. without sort of considering. It was so really, priv- it like really quite privileged of her to say that. It's quite classist as well. I'd argue even ableist. And I'd probably stop listening to that podcast. When it comes to meltdowns, pre-prepared food is your best friend. Mm. It's totally pointless to say, like, you know, you can just be doing a whole meal from scratch. It's an unreasonable expectation. So as long as you're eating healthfully to an extent, I think some pre-prepared food and having that on occasion when it's needed is not a bad thing 
So as an example, when I was really sick last year, having sort of come out of COVID quarantine and sort of being really quite ill for quite a long time, and this sort of magnified my sensory issues by quite a terrifying degree, to be totally honest. I was also sleeping a lot. Um, Last year, I was subsidising myself on pizza and ice lollies for a long time because I was a bit, I couldn't stand up, like, for any amount of time. I couldn't, it took me six weeks to be able to raise my arms above my head. Like, it was terrifying. But it's completely unreasonable to go, oh, yes, just cook, you're fine now. Like, it's an unreasonable standard. Pre-prepared food is, it's, Mm -hmm. I really disagree when, campaigners start saying like we should ban particular food and that sort of thing we shouldn't be there should be an element of choice or at least include this particular demographic in discussion about how to be reasonable exactly and not all pre-prepared food is really bad um so i mean like you said you it could just be the case of you you need vegetables that are already cut up because you can't yeah. do it yourself or you, you need things that have been partly cooked you can also now get a lot more healthier meals that are ready meals essentially but you know it's just, just looking at but if you need that because you can't do it that day you don't need to feel guilty you know it, it's that's the other side of it and maybe on the I good days you can bulk bulk cook and put it in the freezer yeah. on the good days that's a really good it's that was actually something that my chronically ill friends were all teaching me how to do to bulk cook and to batch cook but it's even things like I actually have salad bags, like rock bags of rocket and bags of rocket boots that I would just snack on. That's pre-prepared because it's not to come off like a lettuce. Yeah, but it's healthy that, and it's fine. It's just been put in a bag, you know. Yeah, no, I totally agree yeah. with you there. I would love for someone who's not autistic to explain this to me. Why is it such a crime to have the same thing two days running or more? This just makes no sense to me. It's even things like, so I was in my local coffee shop recently. I was in my favourite spot. I had my safe food. I had my planner out. And it was all like, it was fine in a safe space. And I just remember that there was this guy who was with his girlfriend. He was lining up to get his coffee. And they were having this sort of wonderful conversation, which all of a sudden it seemed to change. But And he was, he really laid into her when she'd said that she'd had the same thing two days running so i even remember he called her i think it the term was disgusting to which she said why like it's just food mm. like it's not it's not like there's nothing wrong with it and it's like, well that's not the way it's done laura james sort of writes about this in odd go out where there's this idea and i think it's quite sort of neurotypical where neurotypicals are like oh you're missing out who are you to decide what we're missing out on? It's just, it is exhausting. Why do you think you have some say or control over the lives of other people? Like, your spaces may collide every so often, but it's so entitled. Like, yeah. can we just drop this ridiculous idea? That judgment is just not needed, is it? Because, yeah, okay, we could try and cook different things every single day and then risk burnout. Um, we could yeah. do that and and actually sacrifice other things that are more important to us yes it's easy for you to do that but for the sake of eating the same thing in two days you know there's a certain lunch I eat all the time certain dried noodles that are healthy ones that I continually use because I can't be bothered to think of things for lunch anymore and at some point I'll go, I go off of it and then I have to try and think of something else but I don't need that on top of everything else that my executive 
dysfunction, as I call it, does not want to cope with. So I have to try and make some things easier. And I don't care if people judge this. Oh, she's always eating the same thing. How does she not get bored? Probably do get bored, but it's just to fuel the body to get on with everything else. So there are other things that are more important to me to put that energy and focus into. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand who are neurotypical, sadly. (laughs) Exactly. I really want to make it into sort of merchandise going, don't judge me for a shirt just to wear it across my yeah. chest and sort of go like that and point to myself. Whenever you should do that. I think a lot of people would purchase it. Gosh, definitely. But in terms of your book, then, if people want to buy it, which I think a lot of people will, where can they find it? The Autism Friendly Cookbook is out worldwide now. So it's available pretty much anywhere. So you can get it on Amazon, Waterstones, Foils. If you're in the US, you can get it from Barnes and Noble. You can mm-hmm. get it from the publisher. Well, I'll put I'll put like probably the Amazon link into the um, show notes because that's lots of people have that and that'll be there. And if anyone wants to look at more about what you do and the writing you do and things like that, can they see you on Instagram or anywhere like that? I'm on Twitter and Instagram. My username is always at journo underscore Lydia. I'm also on Substack. So if you search for the Substack newsletter, the Disabled Feminist, this is a three-part project that is slowly getting towards release. By the time this podcast is released, I'm hoping that it will be finally launched with artwork and everything. Other than that, I am doing some speaking events. So you you could possibly see me in the UK in person, possibly. I'll be at Nadex, which is in March. I think it's the 22nd and 23rd of March. This is the largest disability conference in the UK. This is in Birmingham. I'll be doing a keynote about what we've been talking about today. I'll be at Disability Expo. Apart from that, I'm virtually always on Twitter. So do come and say hi. Like I've not left due to Elon Musk just yet. (laughs) (laughs) No, brilliant. Yeah, I need to get back onto Twitter. I used to love that. And I just seem to have got lost everywhere else. But it is a brilliant resource, actually. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to come on it. We've covered quite a lot of different things. And I feel like I'd love you to come back at some point and talk about some of them in more oh, detail. Because it's, it's really I'd be excited to. Um, oh. Thank you for listening to me. It's no, it's, great. it's the process of writing the book was actually sort of quite solitary in the sense it was mm. lockdown, then between lockdown and then another mm. lockdown. So it's really quite interesting being actually able to talk to people now rather than yeah. sat at my desk typing all the time. Oh, gosh, no, it's brilliant. And I hope, I hope everyone is buying it so that you can do another one i suspect there'll be a second one coming with some more recipes when people have exhausted (laughs) that one (laughs) if i say conversations are ongoing about a second book and all that sort of thing coming there's two books that have been considered i'm sort of playing around with kind of like a memoir manifesto type thing to do with kind of like disability and feminism if those two topics need to be talked about in tandem with each other um one of those things where an editor said to me like you you should write this down you have so many stories that you just talk to us so rather than sort of talking to whatsapp and voice noting us all the time you should write this down so people read this brilliant well if you do do those hopefully we can uh have you back on to talk about them but it would be wonderful to come back thank you yeah, for having thank me thank you no thank you so much enjoy your day bye if you've liked this episode please help us out by liking subscribing or leaving us a review as this helps us to reach more people. If you've got any ideas about topics to cover on future episodes or questions about the pod, or you even want to be interviewed for it, please get in touch on our socials using at MindVoxPod on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, 
or email us on mindvoxpod at gmail.com.